chapter 24. So Luke chapter 24, uh, if you would turn there uh, with me, we're reaching the end of our studies in the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we'll read from verse 13. So Luke chapter 24 and verse 13. That very day, two were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some, of our, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while, we, while he talked to us on the road, while he, uh, while he opened up the scriptures? He opened to us the scriptures. And they rose at CMR and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Amen. And we know God will always bless the reading of his own word. I love biography, historical biography, political biography, even some celebrities. Uh, But, of course, Christian biography, the great saints of the past, missionaries, reformers, preachers, ministers, and pioneers. Now, all biographies have one thing in common, and that is that they all end in the death of their subject. You may find another chapter as a postscript detailing their lasting uh, influence or legacy, um, but they all finish with a funeral But as we read the end of Luke's biography of Jesus, his account of the life and times of Jesus the Messiah, we don't have a death, but we have a resurrection. Indeed, he writes, that's Luke writes another book, the book of Acts, 
And uh, that uh, uh, account is not of his lasting legacy, but his present ministry. Luke begins with the words in my former book, uh, O Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. In the Gospel of Luke, he tells us what Jesus began to do and teach. And in the Acts of the Apostles, he tells us what uh, Jesus continued to do. Jesus has been raised and continues to work in our world. And his biography will continue uh, until, as William Cooper says, the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Now, immediately after the resurrection, Jesus remained on the earth for 40 days. And during that time, he appeared to over 500 people. Now, one of the most uh, interesting of those post-resurrection appearances is to these two disciples on the Emmaus Road. Emmaus was a small village located uh, seven miles, for those that are younger, 11 kilometers from Jerusalem. Some commentators suggest they were, in fact, husband and wife. Uh, But of that we can't be absolutely sure. But they do live at the same address because verse 29 says, uh, tells us, they said to the Lord, stay with us. And in the same verse, so he went in to stay with them. We know that one of them was called Cloapas, which is a masculine name, and the other is unidentified, and so is their gender. So perhaps it could have been a father and son a father and a daughter, two brothers, but most likely a husband and wife. Now, whoever they were, it's clear that these disciples were a very discouraged pair. The whole narrative breathes despondency. Notice they are on their way home from Jerusalem. They are in retreat. When Jesus draws up to them, uh, we're told that they stood, verse 17, their faces looking sad. Uh, The NIV says their faces downcast, uh, literally with sad eyes. Luther translates it as sour. J.B. Phillips paraphrases it with the words, uh, their faces drawn with misery. Uh, You know, sometimes uh, you look at someone and you just know there's something wrong. They don't have to speak. There's just a, a sadness in their eyes. Well, that's what was going on here. with these two on the Emmaus Road, they are just full of sadness. They're discouraged, disillusioned, and downcast. And that's confirmed in the unfolding conversation between themselves and the risen Lord Jesus. But a change takes place, a remarkable change, because at the end of the story, we find them going back to Jerusalem in a different frame of mind than when they left Jerusalem. They returned with eagerness, with a spring in their step, with joy in their hearts, utterly transformed. I want you to notice three things this morning. The reasons for their discouragement, the remedy to their discouragement, and their recovery from their discouragement. So first of all, then, the reasons for their discouragement. In our story, we find Jesus drawing alongside this discouraged pair, Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Now, that wasn't unusual in the Middle East. That was fairly normal. Uh, If somebody did that today, we would feel a bit uncomfortable, a bit strange. You know when you're out for a walk and somebody is coming up behind you at a quicker pace 
than you, you either slow down or speed up so that you don't have to walk beside them. We feel a bit uncomfortable walking alongside strangers. You may even bend down to tie your lace or to pretend to tie your lace or look in a shop window to let them pass. But in Jesus' day, especially in the evening, there was safety in numbers and people would naturally get themselves into company and travel together. And so Jesus draws alongside, but they don't recognize him. And he begins a conversation with them. Look at verse 17. And he said to them, what is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? Again, in the Middle East, that was uh, uh, a fairly normal and natural thing to do. It's our equivalent to what's up or what's happening or in America, what's going down. How is it going, says Jesus? And they are surprised at the question because there is one issue on everybody's mind uh, and one topic of conversation. So they say in verse 18, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Have you just arrived? Have you just traveled in from a far country, uh, dropped in from Mars? How do you know what's not happening? And as uh, they explain to Jesus the events of those days, we get an insight into why they were discouraged and disaffected. And there are three reasons. Their hearts were saddened, their hopes were shattered, and their faith was shaken. So first of all, their hearts were saddened. Look at verses 19 uh, to 20. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in word and uh, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. These people obviously knew Jesus well. They were well acquainted with him. They knew of his ministry. He was mighty in word. They knew of his miracles. He was mighty indeed. You will notice from verse 13 that the section begins that very day, two of them. Two of who? Two of them. Who is the them? Two of his followers, two of his disciples, two of them. They had come to believe in Jesus. They had come to follow Jesus. They had become disciples of Jesus. They loved Jesus. But suddenly, And unexpectedly and brutally, his life was cut off and he was taken from them. He had died. Now, any death of a loved one is a painful experience for those who remain. But when that death is unexpected and is uh, somebody who's relatively young, still in their prime, the grief that is associated with that death is intensified. But added to that, was the way in which Jesus had died. He didn't die by accident or by illness, but was cut off in the most brutal of ways. He was handed over to, notice this, our chief priests, our chief priests and rulers, the very ones that you would have expected to acknowledge him and embrace him, him, the ones who were the custodians of, of the law and the prophets. They were the ones who rejected him. And not only that, they handed him over to be crucified, the most brutal and barbaric form of capital punishment ever devised by man. 
And the death of our Lord and the way that he died had a traumatic effect on his followers. Their hearts were sad because they were grieving over the loss of someone they loved deeply. And as I have so often said at funerals, one who was so greatly loved will be greatly missed. That grief is most acute in the hearts of those who love the most. But you see, sometimes that grief uh, drives us to God, but on other occasions it can drive us from God, leaving us bitter and brokenhearted. Their hearts were saddened. Secondly, their hopes were shattered. Look at verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. These followers of Jesus had embraced all the common and current ideas about the Jewish Messiah. They believed that the Messiah, when he would come, he would throw off the yoke of Roman bondage, that he would restore the fortunes of Israel and restore the glory of David's uh, reign. As David's greater son, he would reign from David's throne Uh, with authority and with a glory that not only would parallel David's, but would exceed the glory of David's reign. And now all those hopes and aspirations lie buried in a tomb in Jerusalem. Their, Their hopes lay in tatters. And three days after his death, there was no way they believed that these hopes would be revived. Now, Proverbs 13 and verse 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And that's what these people had. These two, maybe a husband and wife, they had a sick, disappointed heart. And sometimes we too can find ourselves surrounded by shattered hopes and uh, disappointed dreams. The hope of marriage. The hope of an apprenticeship, the hope of university, the hope of a good job, the hope of promotion, the hope of a healthy and happy retirement. And because those hopes aren't realized, we become overtaken by discouragement and despondency. Our hearts become uh, sick when something we have longed for, prayed for, doesn't happen. Our hopes lie only as an aspiration, and we can become despondent over that. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So the reasons for the discouragement, their hearts were saddened, their hopes were shattered. And then thirdly, their faith was shaken. Look at verses 21 uh, to 24. In verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen, even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. It had been three days since all these things had taken place, and still God had not intervened. They had heard the reports of the woman and uh, how Peter and John had gone to the tomb and found the tomb empty. 
Now, it's clear that these two didn't believe the reports of the women and were confused about the fact that Peter and John found an empty tomb. Now, remember back to our study last week in verses 6 and 7, when the angel uh, spoke to the women, the angel said in verse 6, Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day rise. On the third day he would rise. Now, verse 21 tells us it was the third day and these things happened. Now, think about this. In spite of the testimony of the woman, in spite of the report of Peter and John, who had seen the empty grave close, still intact, instead, uh, in, uh, in spite of the fact that they heard the report that uh, of the angels, that, of the angel that reminded the women that Jesus himself had said that on the third day he would rise, these two pack up their bags, leave the disciples, and go home. They reject the testimony of the woman, they reject the testimony of Peter and John. And most significantly of all, they reject the prophecy of Jesus himself, that on the third day he would rise, but him they did not see. Can you get the force of this? Their faith was so shaken that they reject the testimony of the woman, they reject the evidence of the apostles, and most significantly of all, they reject the word of Christ. Now, put yourself into their shoes. If you had been waiting with the disciples in Jerusalem, and, uh, and these women come back and say, the tomb's empty, and we met an angel, who reminded us that uh, Jesus himself said that on the third day he would rise. And then that's further confirmed by Peter and John coming back and said the tomb is empty. And, and most unusually of all, the grave clothes are still intact. It's as if a body has passed through the grave clothes. Would you not stay and find out if those reports were true? But these two say, we're out of here. We don't believe any of this nonsense. It's the third day, and we're going home. Their faith was shattered. That's why they were returning to a mess. Their faith lay in tatters. And again, sometimes when we pass through trials and difficulties, uh, our faith can be strengthened, but at other times, our faith can be shaken shaken. And we begin to doubt, we begin to question, and we begin to wonder if it's all true. I say to people on numerous occasions, you've got to remember that the devil is a dirty fighter. He doesn't play by Queensbury rules. It's when you're down and when you're suffering that he comes and puts the boot in. He makes the most of your difficulty in order to undermine your faith. So the, the reasons for the discouragement, their hearts were saddened, their hopes were shattered, their faith was shaken. The second thing I want you to notice is the remedy 
uh, for their discouragement. Look at verses 25 to 27. Verse uh, 25, And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, uh, all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted it to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus immediately uh, takes these two discouraged disciples uh, on a Bible study of the Old Testament. He rebukes their, um, their uh, lack of faith and he diagnoses their problem. O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Literally, Jesus says to these uh, two disciples, O oh, simple ones, O oh, dull-witted ones, O oh, thick-headed ones, you're so slow to understand what the prophets have said. The problem was deeper than first imagined. It wasn't simply that they didn't believe the woman's testimony. It wasn't simply that they didn't believe the testimony of Peter and John. It wasn't simply that they rejected the reminder that Jesus himself had said that on the third day he would rise. They refused to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Now, that word all is an important word in the text. It's a good practice, I think, just to underline in verses 25 and 27 or circle that word all. O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what God uh, what God had said in all the scriptures, all the scriptures concerning himself. All, all, all. Do you see what the problem was with these two? They had a, a partial and an inadequate, indeed a selective understanding of what the Old Testament taught about the Messiah. They believed the Old Testament, but not all of the Old Testament. They took out the bits that pleased them, the bits that emphasized the glory and the majesty and the victory of the Messiah, but they left out the bits about his suffering, his substitution, and his resurrection. They were partial and selective in the studies, in the scriptures that they focused on. Now, that's a, a problem, not just with these two, but it's a, a problem uh, with us also, uh, that we focus upon the bits that make us feel good about God and good about ourselves, and we ignore the hard teaching of Scripture. So Jesus begins with Moses and all the prophets to explain what was said in all the Scriptures concerning himself. He takes them on a whistle-stop tour of the messianic predictions of the Old Testament. He gives them the big, big picture. Now, remember, it's only uh, seven miles, 11 kilometers from Jerusalem uh, to Emmaus. So these people who come and say that Christ is in every verse and every chapter uh, of the Old Testament, that's, that's not what's happening. It's only a, a seven-mile journey, and Jesus joins them partially through that journey. He, he gives them the big picture. He shows them the panorama of the Old Testament predictions concerning the Messiah. Look at verse 26. 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? That he tells them that the Old Testament had predicted and foreshadowed the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Not simply that the Messiah would redeem Israel, but that he would redeem his people, and he would redeem them by suffering and dying and entering into his glory. Their inadequate view of the Messiah was brought about by a selective and partial understanding of of the Bible and what the Bible said about the Messiah. So Jesus takes them on a Bible study, and the remedy to their discouraged uh, hearts was a study of the Word of God. Now, notice this carefully. Look, look at verse 16. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Do you notice that? Notice it doesn't say they didn't recognize him. It says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. There was a supernatural ignorance going on here that God himself blinded their eyes. Now, go down to verse 31. This is when Jesus is in their house breaking bread, and we're told in verse 31, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. So their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and then their eyes were opened that they would recognize him. Uh, recognize him. Why was that? Why, why would God do that? Why would God blind their eyes so they didn't recognize who they were talking to, and then after the Bible study, open their eyes so that they would recognize who they were talking to? Why would he do that? Why not just reveal himself? Why did they not recognize him immediately? Because there was something very significant going on. Because they had a defective understanding of the Word of God. Jesus wanted their faith to be based upon the Word of God and not simply their experience. So he was laying a foundation in the Word of God for their faith. And they didn't recognize him him, until the Bible study was completed. Our faith in the resurrection has to be based upon Scripture and not experience. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. No, 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 no. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives... Because the full weight and testimony of Scripture tells me that he lives. That it is the Word of God and on the Word of God that our faith is based. That the Word of God is crucial in the hour of temptation, in the hour of trial, to sustain and feed our faith. The psalmist says, Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Your word have I hid in my heart. Our faith is not faith in experience. 
It's faith based on the revelation of God himself in his word. And he lives because the Bible declares that he lives. It's the truth, the truth of God. So are you sinking in misery? Are you overtaken by doubt? Do you find yourself hanging on by your fingernails, trying to make sense of all the things that have happened in your life? What is the remedy? The remedy is the Word of God. They were kept from recognizing Him until the Bible study was completed. I find that very, very significant. The reasons for their discouragement, the remedy uh, to their discouragement, and then lastly, the recovery from their discouragement. As they approached the home of these two, and remember, uh, because they shared a home, it was uh, likely that um, they were husband and wife. As they, as they approached this, this home, Jesus made as if he was going further, but they invited him in, and, uh, and uh, they're sitting at the table, and he broke the bread, verse 30, blessed it, and gave it to them. Now, please don't read into the text. This is not a communion service. It couldn't have been a communion service because the communion service had only been instituted the day, well, a few days before, and only 11 of the disciples were present. So it's not a communion service. Breaking bread and giving thanks was the normal way a Jewish family would begin a meal. Now, it's while he does this that they recognize him. Some scholars speculate and say, was it the prayer that he prayed intimately with his father that gave them the clue? Was it his hands that they saw as he broke the bread? Well, those things may have had something to do with it. But as I said, the real reason is recorded in verse 31, and their eyes were opened uh, and they recognized him. Now, notice the change that comes over these disciples when they recognize him. Look at verse uh, 33. In verse 33, And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. What a contrast. They had just trudged seven miles out of Jerusalem, discouraged, disheartened, broken, and bewildered disciples on the edge of despair. And I don't suppose they had slept much over the last previous few days. They were absolutely exhausted. It's now evening. The road was dark, pitch black, full of the dangers that uh, night brings in a place where there's no street lighting. But nothing could deter these two. They were filled with new vigor and excitement, and uh, they are bursting to break the news to the rest of the disciples. And so we're told there in verse 33, and they rose that CMR and returned to Jerusalem. They had only started the meal, so presumably they hadn't um, much time for sustenance, uh, but they uh, got up when Jesus disappeared and they returned to Jerusalem. And I don't suppose they had lead in their boots. I think they uh, went back as quickly as they could, perhaps running most of the way. 
Now, I do feel a bit sorry for these two because when they reach the upper room, the eleven are already discussing the resurrection. Verse 11, and the Lord, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. After Simon saw the empty grave clothes, the Lord came and appeared to him. They burst in with their news to discover that the news had already broken. And in verse 35, we read, Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now, what a blessing this is. These two discouraged, broken disciples are revived in their faith Their enthusiasm returns by the conviction that Jesus was with them and that Jesus had explained to them from the Scriptures uh, that He would rise. Yes, it's true that they did see Him and recognize Him, but even before that revelation, their faith was revived. Look at verse 32. Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road, and he opened the Scriptures. And it's interesting that when they return to the eleven, they say he has appeared to us too, but in verse 35, they told all that had happened on the way. Their faith is restored when they grasp the truth of Scripture. Now, just for a moment, just turn over to another post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to John chapter 20. And I want you to turn to this because I want you to see it for yourself. John chapter 20. This is to Thomas and verse 26. John chapter 20, verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, uh, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, you remember Peter says, or Thomas had said, unless I put my finger in the, wood, the wounds, I will not believe. They're stubborn unbelief. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. Now notice this. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So our faith is of a greater order than that of Thomas's because Thomas saw and believed. We don't see, yet we believe. But you remember the first rule of exegesis and exposition is the same rule as real estate. Location, location, location. This isn't believing in the dark. This isn't believing on hearsay. Read on. Sometimes people rip these verses out of the context, but they're so important. Now, Jesus did many other signs, verse 30, in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have faith in his name. When I was converted, somebody came to me and said, Stephen, you're committing intellectual suicide. You're believing in the dark. No, no, no. These things, what things? 
These things are written that you might believe. That Thomas believed because of a revelation of the risen Jesus Christ. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe because their faith is based upon the inerrant, the infallible Word of God. These things are written that you may believe. And the answer to shaky, hesitating, disappointed faith is not a fresh experience, is is not some uh, new height of devotion. It's a Bible study. It's listening to the Word of God. And sometimes people say to me, you know, Stephen, I'm in no frame of mind to come to church. I'm too depressed to come to church. I want to tell you this morning, the worst thing you can do when you're depressed or discouraged is stay away from church. Because what you need above everything else is the Word of God speaking into your life and uh, staunching that unbelief and reviving faith within you. You need the Word of God. If you're not a Christian and you're hanging about and you're saying to yourself, well, what I need is a revelation. What I need is a great experience. What I need is God to come down to me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. These things are written that you may believe and that by believing you might have life in His name. And the whole of the gospel and the remedy for your sin and the solution uh, 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 and the, the, the end of a relationship with God is to be found in the Bible. If you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to, to read the Scriptures. I would encourage you to read John's Gospel because John's Gospel, these things are written that you might believe. Do you see that? It's not, it's not faith in the dark. It's not intellectual suicide. It's getting to grips with the revelation of God. So when faith is shaken, you need Scripture. When, when, when you need to, to, to uh, seek after, after Christ, you begin with the book. That's the remedy. Jesus took these two on a tour a whistle-stop tour of the Old Testament, proving from the Old Testament that the Messiah would suffer, bleed, die, and rise again. That's the answer. The Word, the Word, the Word. The Word must be central in our lives. And and the Word is the agent of faith that strengthens our faith and indeed leads us into faith. You cannot separate the Spirit of God from the Word of God. You can't, you can't do that. The writers of the New Testament don't allow us to do that because the Word of God is inspired by the Spirit of God, and our experiences must be based upon the Word of God. So here we have this wonderful example of a recovery uh, in faith. The reasons they were discouraged, their faith, their hearts were saddened, their hopes were shattered, their faith was shaken. The remedy 
beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself and their recovery. They were filled with new faith and vigor because their hearts burned on the way as Jesus explained scripture to them. Thomas Watson uh, was a, a Puritan, and he referred to the Word of God as the bladder of God, the bladder of God. And what he meant by that was, you know, in days before uh, life rings or life jackets, they had these inflatable devices that they would throw into the sea to hold you up and to hold your head uh, above water. And he said, you need the Word of God to hold your head above the water. And in a sermon he preached on the 17th of August, 1662, he said, Trade much in the promises of God. They are great supports to faith. Faith lives in Scripture as a fish lives in water. Faith lives in Scripture as a fish lives in water. Amen.